Fusapod, conversations about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I think that a lot of people are, are resistant to technology because they do feel like it will be biased. And that is just because of the little that we know, because the history of the tech industry itself and how it looks, mm-hmm. it's seen as affluent, it is seen as white. It is not seen as something that is fully integrated with, with communities that look like us. I'm Carlina Rivera. I'm a member of the New York City Council District 2, which includes the awesome neighborhoods of Lower East Side, East Village, Gramercy, Rose Hill, Kipps Bay, Flatiron, Union Square, and Murray Hill. Talk about balancing constituent needs there. (laughs) How can local politicians design ways to better engage their constituents? Can processes like participatory budgeting or more streamlined digital technologies help increase civic engagement? Welcome to FUSAPOD. I'm Lee Sean Huang. In this episode, David Colby Reed and I sit down with New York City Council member Carlina Rivera to learn about her work in Manhattan and try to understand how she connects and engages with the full diversity of people in her district in today's political climate. Carlina Rivera grew up on New York's Lower East Side and as of January 1st of 2018, now represents the very district where she grew up. Now back to Councilmember Rivera. My family, we are not a political family, but I come from a family that takes a lot of pride in, you know, their civic duty. So for example, in my family, you know, going to vote was a big deal. My grandparents, they would dress up to vote or my mother would always take us to, my mother would take me and my sister to the booth. You know, that's when we had the curtain. It was actually quite exciting because you pulled the lever and it's Mm -hmm. a little bit different now. Now you put a piece of paper in a computer, but the results are faster and it's much more efficient. But I remember like like, flicking the switches and then pulling, yeah, it was so much fun. You know, so so we would go with her and she would say, okay, here's what I'm gonna do and this is how I'm voting. And so that memory has, has always stuck with me as well as her having, you know, a pretty close network of friends, a few in particular that were very, very involved locally. And one tenant leader in our building, she would always tell us what's going on, what meetings we should attend, and that we should have an active tenants association in our building, and she was the president at the time. And she's no longer with us, but that legacy of hers, I, I will always carry with me. And when I went to college, again, I, don't really, I didn't really consider myself a, a, a political person. I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and they have something called the Marist Institute of Public Opinion. And that is one of the, we're pollers, right? So we would go and we would, uh, there would be a whole room of us at, at MIPO, and we would call people around the country asking their opinion. And that was the first time I got to call people from around the country asking them what they thought the, the job of the president was doing and they had to, first I had to get them not to hang up on me because I wasn't asking them for money, but, but that I just wanted their opinion. How did you find yourself like working at like the, the Marist Institute of Public Opinion? Like how, how did you end up there too? Like, well, I thought one was, uh, I think it was the highest paying job on campus. <laughs> Um, I was, I was personable this, I was pretty personable back then as well. And I knew that I could have a conversation because, um, I feel like, you know, I'm pleasant. I have customer service skills. And so I thought, okay, this is something that I could do. And I just found it pretty interesting. So I'm calling people from around the country. They're, they're telling me what they think. 
And it was, um, it was eye-opening. It was, you know, I'm calling people from California, from Arizona, from Nevada, from Ohio, and clearly red states, blue states, purple places um, in terms of, of their political alignment. But I, I found that so interesting. So when I came back home, I thought, well, you know, the, the best place to do is to start locally. So I started volunteering with a, a local organization called Guru Lower East Side Goals, and that was also on recommendation from my tenant leader. And then they told me about the community board. And that's when I really got to see, I feel like, civic engagement um, live in front of me, and you were able to participate in a way that's actually very similar to the city council. And I thought, you know, with the mayor's poll, you're taking all that data, you're putting it together, you're, you're creating these results in, in this local board. I thought, oh, a lot of people should see this. You know, so we, we just recently started live streaming the event, too. And I think that's a big deal. Um, so th there were ways that I was, I was looking at civic engagement. I was kind of looking at how it could be a little bit friendlier, I thought, for my generation. I mean, we're the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram kind of generation. And just constantly having that in my mind as to, um, I love being involved in my community. I mean, I take a lot of pride in it that it's the district where I've spent my life. But I also can see you know, little instances of where I know technology could really improve overall processes for different things. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an invitation then, <laughs> you know, what are, <laughs> you know, thank you for doing the job for me. <laughs> like, how, how, like, what are some areas where technology could improve the process? And actually, relatedly, like, how are you using or not using technology to like source community input as well? with anything new, with technology, with even upgrading something like, like a database, you really have to be ready for the maintenance, right? For operations. Mm -hmm. And I think that even coming from the nonprofit sector, we were always looking for you know new tech or something new, but if we had no one to maintain it or upgrade it, or someone to constantly be refreshing the data or the content, then it becomes pretty stale and pretty useless pretty quickly. So I think that that is something that we struggle with in government, in the nonprofit sector. And I think that there is a lot of opportunity if we just, I think, of course, the, the, the tech industry is, is growing. It's booming here in New York City. It's the, the fastest growing sector based on everything I've seen and I've read. And I think that we have a lot of opportunity to use it for civic engagement. So if it's Facebook, of course, having to maintain that. I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time. I think it's really important for an elected official. In fact, people will question me like, yeah, okay, you didn't tweet anything about that. You know? <laughs> and then you have to look at to, to what people are, you know, even younger than myself are doing. Like I was just with students at the National Walkout and kind of what they're using. And just making sure that, uh, that we're looking to whatever's new, whatever's fresh, but that we're also, you know, when I mention generations, of course, you have to think of the baby boomers. You have to think of what they're using to get their content. Um, of course, people still read the newspaper, but that, that's not like it, you know, not like they used to. So I think it's, it's having, being able to keep it updated, the operations, the maintenance, that's so, so important because I can't tell you how many times people have wanted to bring me something, especially when I'm working, when I was working at Goals, which is a very grassroots organization and not having the support staff. So I, I think that there's, there's a lot of room for the private and the public sector to grow. And it's just making sure that we are really just 
using the best, like the best teams, the best quality. We are New York City and people look to us as a model mm -hmm. for a lot of things. And I know that, that we could also look to other cities who are doing things a little bit better. And I'm looking forward to, to using those models locally and abroad and to improving civic engagement and, and government life. So, yeah, as a designer, I'm kind of hearing two different themes and insights that are emerging from this conversation so far. I think one is just this idea of touch points, right? You've told the story about how you got involved with making sure that you voted and how that was a ritual for your family. And then these other touch points of civic engagement, like going to a community board meeting or even answering like a polling call, right, to make your voice heard. And so... You know, even now today as an elected official, you're posting things on Twitter, responding on Twitter. So all of these are touch points, right? Connections between elected officials, public servants, and the residents, citizens of a given place. Um, and all of these are sort of designed, and even though they're designed in different ways, right? In physical space, in on a mobile phone, but there's still these, people expect a consistency across them. And then I think the other insight um, to think about is these different paces of fast and slow, right? You mentioned that technology needs to be updated all the time, but then there's also these institutions or these structures that are much slower, right? So like elections have been happening for a while. There's community boards are pretty well established as a thing. And even though some of the, pro the processes and the tools change, they're kind of on a different pace, right? And we also have to worry about or be concerned about accessibility and making it available to people. So that's kind of my designer lens on these different things that you're talking about. I don't know if that sparks anything um, for you to react to or think about. Yes, actually, um, well said. I think you're absolutely right. I think about those three things all the time. It's, it's something that I'm looking to um, implement uh, pretty soon in the district that's called participatory budgeting. Oh. And participatory budgeting uh, allows an everyday citizen, I think we're going to, it was for citizens as young as, and when I say citizens, I don't mean anything in regards to status. I just mean a New Yorker, a person, a human being. Um, it, I, as young as 14, I think we're looking to bring the age down to 12. And so what this will give um, a resident the, oppor the opportunity to do is to vote on how money is spent. So essentially, right, your tax dollars are being spent on infrastructure projects, and this will give people the opportunity to vote on how the council members, you know, pot of money, which is essentially the district's money, is spent. And why I'm bringing that up is because you can do this multiple ways, right? So one thing you should do is you should set up in, in places in your district where people congregate. And by being the council person, you should know where those places are. But you're also allowing people to vote online. So you, you know, and as council members, you get a little chance to compete as to who can get the, the most votes. And so you want to make sure that you are out there taking paper ballots, maybe from those seniors who aren't digitally savvy, but also you're getting those those online votes as to how people should spend their own tax dollars. And I think that that's a great model for civic engagement. It's nothing too high tech, right? There's some ideas you get to vote and then you get to see it come to life. And I think that engaging with people as young as 14, as young as 12 years old, that, oh, hey, this is, you know, money that comes from the city council going into your community. There's another place that you can engage a young person or whoever and make them feel like they are part of something. Why I mentioned that, that I'm not defining anyone as citizen or resident is that anyone can vote. So I'm really interested. Well, first off, just as on a quick note, we taught a class last semester called Designing for Citizenship. And 
the whole idea was that you know we can think about citizenship as like a legal designation and so on but we can also think about it as like a verb you know like how do you engage and how do you practice citizenship irrespective of legal status you know and and so i think like this idea about participatory uh, budgeting is certainly you know of a piece with like practicing this idea of citizenship and I guess, you know, like, and I realized that it's not in the district yet and you'll be rolling it out. But one of the questions that I have about participatory budgeting is like, how do you balance learning about an issue with the broad based participation that you want to see? Like, you want as many people voting as possible. And yet, you know, um, like how do people learn about issues and how, how can you like help contribute to like a knowledge base so that sh such that people are making informed votes right. and, and it's a tension and I'm curious about how it's managed because it's never resolved, you know? It's a great question. And so one of the things that you're supposed to do that you have, you know, set up before you just go into voting is you set up committees, you um, coordinate these larger meetings in which you explain to people the process. So you're essentially almost having like a series of town halls mm -hmm. before you actually start the voting process. So you know you're you're sometimes when I get when I get up to talk in, in front of a group of people, sometimes I try to gauge you know try you try to know your audience and gauge what people's um, I guess what they know about local government. And a lot of people don't know what a council person even is, yeah. and, and I get that. So sometimes I try to give them like the quick and dirty version of what we do. You know, we pass the budget, constituent services, uh, we're legislators, um, we're your, your most local representative. I try to hit those points really quickly. But you really do have to engage in a much kind of bigger endeavor when it comes to PB, when it comes to participatory budgeting. And that's why it's a year long process. So you have to find these people that are gonna form these committees, you have to do the outreach. And I think that, you know, some would argue, some council members would argue that they don't, uh, I guess, participate in PB because they feel like they have very active community boards and block associations who know how to reach their representatives and who know how to advocate for these projects. And I think that District 2 has some amazing community boards who are very engaged, and we certainly have active block associations and community associations. But again, this is, I think, one more way to reach either a demographic or a person who would probably not engage with local government. And I think that we have to be trying all different angles. So you're right, there's an education component to this, absolutely. And you have to be prepared for that in terms of your own capacity as a council member, and it is very demanding. It sounds like there's also this deliberative component to it as well, right? That democracy isn't just showing up to vote during those cycles, but to really, even on that smaller scale of participatory budgeting for small amounts of money sometimes, there's the kind of learning about something, but also talking about it with essentially your neighbors to understand different perspectives in something like that. And that's part of the process, not just about like, here's an idea, everybody vote for it, thumbs up, thumbs down on Facebook kind of thing. Right, right. And, and I think why that's so important is also the, the accountability in terms of how people are looking to us. So you're coming into a process where you are understanding that this, this is real money. These are millions of dollars that are going to be spent. And that is essentially your tax dollars, right? So is your council member looking out for you? Are they funding projects that affect your life? Are they renovating that park that your kids and, and your grandkids are using? Or are they 
focusing their money in other places, right? Are they being equitable? Are they looking to the neediest parts of the district? And it's not just capital money. We also get expense funds, which mm -hmm. fund the programs throughout the district. So this also gives you kind of an insight into, okay, there is a very big city budget that this person has a responsibility to pass and to advocate for me. So where are those dollars going? Quick aside to define the terms here. An expense budget includes things like salaries for government employees, keeping the lights on, the heat on, office supplies. Whereas the capital budget refers to building new infrastructure or refurbishing existing infrastructure. So that's new schools, roads, libraries, parks, etc. I'm really glad that you mentioned the difference between capital and expense budgets here, because I'm sure this is a big part of your work. It's something that I've learned on the community board with district need statements mm -hmm. and so on. Like we have to distinguish between them. But I'd imagine that there's a lot of pressure for capital projects because they're more visible. And how do you, first off, is that your experience with capital and expense budgets and requests? But if it is the case, like, how do you think about like making like some of those services more visible so that expense uh, requests and so on can excite people too? Because I, I imagine that a lot of I mean, certainly with like constituent uh, relations and, and service kinds of work, like you need to be able to know who to call and like you need to be able to have people on the other end of the phone, like who can answer questions or, or do that work. But it's it's more invisible than, you know, a park renovation. And so how do you how do you think about like making the invisible visible there? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right. You also get, you know, more money for infrastructure because mm. of expenses, but also um, you know, the infrastructure, it can be so costly, but, but I think that, you know, we've come to the point where, you know, things are a certain way in the city council because people have learned, and I think that you're right, people probably advocated over, over many, many years to have a good pot of capital funds in order to leave what a lot of people call, leave behind what they call legacy projects, mm -hmm. right? Something you can actually see like, oh, I put that park there, or, you know, I renovated this, this school, or, you know, you're right, it is more visible. So I think for... For me, when it comes to expense, and we are lucky in that we have a lot of community-based organizations and nonprofits that do great work. So when I'm funding direct services, which is, for example, someone who has an issue, a senior citizen has an issue with their benefits, or someone is having a problem with that landlord, you might not necessarily see that work, right? This is done, you know, in maybe a cubicle in a small nonprofit here in the East Village. And um, how do you see that? And I think that I think that you're right. Sometimes it, it, thinking about it, um, you might not see it, but when you talk about preservation or when you continue to see um, neighborhoods retain that authenticity and that community, that's when you go back to, that's why I fund those groups because mm -hmm. they're keeping people in their homes and in their community. It almost seems like there's like a need to t like m maybe the currency there isn't like hey great metrics or great optics in the form of like a park renovation but it's like stories almost like maybe that's the best currency for 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 measuring some of the importance of like those kinds of expense things you know this is just yeah. off the cuff but like you're right and you know when people mention legacy projects they um they they ask me about um something like the tech hub that is being rumored in union square and how if we can do this the right way, that it could be a digital skills 
a training center that is going to bring workforce development to what has historically been underserved communities to give pathways to careers in a growing industry. And so I have to think about that every day as I'm negotiating with City Hall and negotiating with the developer as to could this project be so great that I could consider it a legacy project? Mm -hmm. So now that you're 10 weeks on the job, how are you thinking about legacy? <laughs> well, like, like, what do you want yours to be uh, as you're thinking about it now? You know? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I would, I am been very focused on workforce development. I mm -hmm. think that, that job readiness is going to be important when we're looking at 20 for our 21st century economy. Um, again, growing industries like, like tech, like healthcare. I think even like culinary skills jobs are gonna be important because of the, the service industry in our city. You know, we have a lot of restaurants, we, we have um, a lot of food markets, and I think that those skills are gonna be really important and making sure that they're paying a living wage. So, you know, of course, when I think about what my priorities are, and people do ask me that question quite a bit, like, oh, what are your priorities? I always say affordability um, for small businesses, but also for affordable housing. And so I want to make sure that people can not only stay here and live here, but that they're going to go to a job that's going to pay them well. And so we have to look at, you know, what's, what's growing? What are the fields that we need more workers? And how are we training people? who typically come from more disenfranchised places in the city and marginalized communities. And we know what they all look like. They're typically, you know, minority communities, black and brown, that live in NYCHA, that live in public housing that is also underfunded. So all of these things are a part of a larger cycle, but I think the workforce component and bringing jobs to the district are, is definitely um, one of my priorities. Of course, affordable housing, and then preservation and making sure that our city still looks the same way because, you know, again, I think that when we look here and we see the work that we, that I mentioned that people are doing in order to, you know, fight bad landlords or this oversaturation of development, of luxury housing, there are still people here that are just low, moderate, and middle income that want to stay and live in New York. I know that's a hard, like, dial to turn because like, a lot of people try but I, I it's so encouraging when like that's one of these bedrock kind of things that you're thinking about for your career in city council you know like I also wanted to ask you because it's been a, you've been in office for a little while now but like what's the most surprising thing that that you've learned about this job because when I think about this from the perspective of like a small business owner the most surprising thing that about my job is that the amount, the amount of time I have to spend, like, chasing people down for money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we have contracts that are signed and or like getting them to signature when everyone wants the work to happen, you know, like, completely under the radar when I started, and it consumes like an outsized portion of time nowadays. What have you got a similar surprise take on on your role? Yeah, I think follow up, uh, following up with people is has been. You would think that okay, you know, everyone knows what they're walking into. You know, you're walking into being uh, responsible for 170,000 constituents, but also working collegially with 50 other members, and of course, different bodies uh, at the state and the federal level. And I think that 
you know, making sure that you could actually, you know, grab your colleague and have a conversation of substance has actually been kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, you can maybe catch them before a, a stated meeting, which is like a community board's full board. Uh, you can catch them in the members lounge and try to have conversations. But in order to really learn from some of these council members and some of their accomplishments, especially the ones who are back for a second or third term, you know, having having the time to do that has proven a bit difficult. And that's a, that, that was just a little bit surprising to me. And I know that time management is always something that I think everyone wants to be better at. And when it comes to time management, for me personally, I think it's putting time on the calendar to almost like reflect to, mm-hmm. to have a bit of time to think mm-hmm. because you are constantly meeting with people and talking and sometimes you'll have these brilliant conversations about strategy like innovative really out the box you know ideas and if you don't write them down and follow up I mean what is a good idea what good is an idea just written down on a piece of paper right so I think having that time to say okay we had this great session you know thinking of of how we're going to negotiate this in the best way possible and just having time for myself to say okay what are my next steps what are the phone calls that I have to have who are the people that I need to talk to because you want to include every stakeholder in New York City, we have a lot of stakeholders, <laughs> so finding time. And it really, I mean, it par- parallels the design process a lot too, right? Because as you mentioned, like ideas are cheap, right? We're in the business of selling ideas and, and things like that, but it's not really about the ideas, what you do with it to make it concrete, make it real afterwards. And so it is understanding these stakeholders and, and how you collaborate. Yeah, I think as a parallel to help kind of wrap up this part is that we have established ways of making our voices heard as residents, as citizens, on the, a lot of the physical environment and structures of our cities, right? So it's like if we need brighter streetlights or if we need uh, you know, a, a new subway stop on a new line, like even if we don't know how to build a subway or know how these lights work, like we can still have an opinion about that and articulate our need. And I think some of the stuff that David was talking about is like, well, now there's these algorithms, computer programs essentially that are determining like, how do you get access to affordable housing or whether or not you get stopped by police officers because you're, you're suspicious in some way. And that also affects our quality of life, right, in a place, but it's just less tangible than, say, the, you know, the street lights or the subway stops. Um, and so how do we give people a say and a voice in that because we have less developed structures for people to input into that process? Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think it's... It's going to take, I think when you have a team that, that also looks a certain way, like, you know, like I said, when we were talking about the tech hub, I think one of my biggest concerns is making sure that the people in that building look mm-hmm. like the community that I grew up in. And I'm just one small part of New York City. And it's a diverse part of New York City that has gone through its own changes and through gentrification. But I think that it's it's important. So I think you're right. It's, it's making sure that people understand that they have access that they realize that everything is related when it comes to something as simple as like a street light so i think it'll it'll take it'll take some time it's already kind of been happening like people realize now that even you know to for your snap benefits or or for something like the human resources um um for hra 
you there's a there's a new app that's actually very very useful that will cut your time from waiting in line or seeing a caseworker or a social worker so there's ways that people realize that technology affects their lives and even improves it so we should just take that to the next level and continue to to have these moments where where we engage people in a real way yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's really encouraging that you're looking at these different channels for finding ways of engaging people. And I mean, it, it's akin to like marketing and speaking in different channels, you know, like you have different messages for different channels and so on. Like you're talking about different methods of engagement for different parts of your constituencies. And so... That's just a really encouraging thing, and we look forward to checking in with you and seeing how it's going and like what lessons you can share at later points too. But oh, this is a cool. yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be great if you we, we come back and uh, you know maybe we'll get this these you know even something as simple as electronic records in our hospital system and how it's changed New York City. No, I don't know, but we you know something like that. I think it would be really cool to check in and see where I'm at in a little bit and, and see how how your fellowship went too, cool, and what cool. you learned. And that's all for this episode. To learn more about Councilmember Carlina Rivera, visit our site, fusa.com slash podcast. That's F as in Frankenfurter, two O's as in original ostrich, two S's as in Siamese salamander, and A as in apple pie, dot com slash podcast. You can also find us wherever people get podcasts. See you next time on FusaPod, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I'm Li Shan Huang. Fusapod. <laughs>